0: Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, our bi-weekly Asia 360 segment with the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada sheds light on Canada's Asia strategy. We're also, of course, going to talk about canola. Plus, a local startup just took home a $25,000 prize for a business that tackles transparency in the seafood industry. I'll speak to the co-founder. BIV has launched BIV Talks It's a series of editorially driven events They feature panels of experts, thought leaders, analysts Who weigh in on some of the most relevant, salient topics I'll give you two examples Our first event is on surviving the real estate slump here in Greater Vancouver That's coming up on March 26th Our second event on March 28th looks at the 5G Dilemma You can register now and get more information over at biv.com slash events We hope to see you there Thanks for listening to BIV Today. Here's our show. Every other week, we take a deeper look at the economics, policies, issues, and politics of the world's fastest growing region in our Asia 360 segment. We have a couple of topics to go through today, including Canada's broader strategy in Asia, as well as canola. And joining me once again, as he does every two weeks, is Jeff Reeves, Vice President of Research at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. Thanks for coming in.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, you just got back from Hong Kong, where we saw the fourth annual meeting of Asia Business Leaders Advisory Council. Tell me a little bit for anyone who's unfamiliar with this council, what function it serves.
1: Well, so it's a, it's an informal um, discussion venue for some of the, the, the bigger um, companies, Canadian companies that are operating in Asia. Uh, part of our advisory group um, consists of, of CEOs from those industries. We also bring in people that are in charge of um, of key development projects, such as the, the um, digital supercluster. Right now, we had represent- uh, representatives from there. Mm. Uh, we also had policy uh, makers, people from universities throughout the region, um, and the idea is to bring Canadian CEOs and policymakers together with their Asian counterparts. So, um, about half of the delegation this time was from Asia, uh, specifically from Hong Kong for this this um, event because we were based in Hong Kong.
0: Interesting. And, yeah. and what was the nature of the conversations? What were some of the highlights?
1: So, uh, of course, a lot of the discussion is around how Canada can better position itself in the Asia-Pacific on the commercial side. Um, of course, that has policy implications. Mm-hmm. So a lot of discussion was about the way that the Canadian government could support uh, Canadian interests, commercial interests throughout the region. Some of the findings were, were um, pretty general around the idea of, of course, the increased desire for um, funding, government back funding, um, opportunities around small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, Canadian small and medium-sized enterprises to scale in, in the Asia-Pacific, what it would take to support them. Again, funding was one of those issues that was identified. The other was just continued government support. In many places in Asia, it's very important to have that government official in the room when you're doing business because so many deals are done through that kind of high-level engagement.
0: Mm. I've spoken to you before about how looking at Asia as one region, it's overwhelming, it's daunting and doesn't necessarily do justice to the smaller economic opportunities in specific countries or smaller regions. Does it make sense to have sort of this pan-Asian strategy or ultimately do we need to break it down?
1: I think looking at the region as a whole has strategic value in helping you understand the importance of it as an emerging area. Mm. Uh, We know that within the next 10 years, for example, the largest middle class in the world will be concentrated in Asia. Uh, That said, it's important to have a country by country strategy because they're so different. And a lot of what we do at my foundation is to try to. to make that message clear to our stakeholders that if you're going to China, if you're going to India, if you're going to Singapore, you're going to have to have a different strategy. The conditions on the ground are much different.
0: From an Asian business leader perspective, as many of them were in the room at this advisory council, do you think that they take Canada's commitment to the region seriously? I know that's been questioned in the past. Is that starting to change?
1: No, I think it's still a question. (laughs) Uh, I think, unfortunately, one of the things that we heard repeatedly was there needs to be continued engagement, not just from business interests, but from the Canadian government. Uh, And I think that... um, you know, as Canadian business interests grow throughout the region and the opportunities for greater engagement grow, having that parallel of support from the government is going to be crucial.
0: Mm. Were there conversations too about opportunities for, say, these companies and leaders in Canada? So, looking the other way at this two-way relationship.
1: I mean, that's that's part of it, of course. Um, the idea again there is making sure that uh, Canada is is being effective in communicating to its Asian partners opportunities. Uh, one of the things that I did at, the, uh, um, at this meeting was to present some of our findings around polling where we talked to business leaders in the Asia Pacific around opportunities in Canada, specifically mm. this issue. And what we found is that there's a high degree of desirability for engagement with Canada but again, there's a lot of uncertainty around the policy and the regulatory environment, where the actual opportunities are and how exactly to engage. And other countries in the region, like Australia, have very, very um, kind of cohesive strategies for engagement and uh, and they're able to put their message out. as a a nation. So when you think about engagement with Australia in Asia, it's about Australia. It's not about individual provinces or states. It's a a very comprehensive approach. And I think that's something right now that Canada unfortunately lacks.
0: And I know Australia for quite some time has seen itself very much as part of the Asian Pacific region. Canada, we're maybe newer to that. We have the gateway to Asia for North America. We have our new CPTPP. What kind of conversations are being had around maybe educating Canadians about the opportunity Opportunities and familiarizing ourselves with maybe our new role in this region
1: so that was a point that was raised as being critical uh, i i 've spent time in Australia, I taught in Australia, and one of the things that you can see is there is an effort from the Australian government to put uh, money into education, into secondary and higher education to make sure that the next generation of uh, Australian students and business people have what we would call asian competency and and From my foundational perspective, this is a, a huge priority and it 's something that we repeatedly heard at this council as uh, something that the Canadian government needs to invest in, Canadian institutions of higher education and secondary students or secondary education uh, institutions have to start thinking about. Now, that competency includes everything from having training in Asian languages to Asian culture to providing opportunities for either Canadian students or early career individuals to go and engage in internships or co-ops, uh, in particular around areas where Canada has value add. So, um, tech, uh, artificial intelligence. There was a lot of talk about how to link the superclusters uh, back into the Asian markets, both in terms of opportunities for engagement, but also for opportunities for uh, back and forth education.
0: That would be very interesting. Now, I have to ask, this took place in Hong Kong. And of course, if you take the temperature of the room or the, you mentioned polling of business leaders here in Canada, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about what Canada's relationship Is like with China and what it will be going forward. What was the mood in the room? Did that come up?
1: So we were actually quite happy that this year we decided to have the event in Hong Kong, simply because it showed a continued area of engagement between Canada and China, despite the fact that there's high level tensions going on at the government to government level. One of the things that we heard repeatedly from our Hong Kong counterparts was that Hong Kong is a special place. Uh, It remains a special place in terms of access to China, in terms of engagement around issues related to, to regulations, the rule of law. It's a place where Canadian firms can go and make sure that their intellectual property is protected, make sure that their contracts are honored, and at the same time have a window into the broader Chinese market, and work with companies, work with individuals that have that deep, deep regional knowledge. So there was a big push from the the Hong Kong side for greater engagement between Canada and Hong Kong.
0: So at this point in time, it continues to be maybe a point of stability in the region, despite a lot of uncertainty between Canada and China?
1: Certainly, that's the way that uh, the Hong Kong government officials that we engaged with presented the opportunities mm. there. Absolutely.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Canada's relationship with China. Of course, sure. Canola in the news now. Yeah. Help put this in a more global context for me in terms of what China's trying to do here.
1: So for a lot of people that have watched Chinese foreign policy uh, uh, for a long time, this wasn't a big surprise. Uh, in fact, that it hadn't had happened sooner was a little <laughs> bit more of a surprise. China has a long history of using what we would call, I mean, economic coercion to achieve political ends. Uh, as early as 2010, we saw China stepping forward and blocking exports of, for example, soya from Argentina after the Argentinian president filed an anti-dumping uh, measure against China at the WTO. Uh, we've seen similar issues around the exports of bananas from the Philippines, around the uh, uh, Export from China to Japan of rare earths, after uh, some conflict between the two countries over territory in the what we just say the, the Sen- Senkaku or Diaoyu Islands, mm. we've seen similar um, economic pressure put on South Korea around its uh, anti-missile program that it's deployed. And of course, with Norway, after uh, it it gave uh, the Chinese dissident Liu Xiaobo the Nobel Prize in in 2012, we saw, excuse me, 2010, we saw a drop in the uh, um, export of of Norwegian salmon to China and a drawdown in um, Chinese tourism going back to Norway. So this is pretty um, standard of the Chinese playbook, but it is something that is new to Canada and uh, is something that you have to start thinking about in the broader engagement strategy uh, between the two countries.
0: Is it an effective strategy?
1: Thus far, it's been completely effective. Yeah. <laughs> uh, putting uh, pressure on states uh, through that economic means has been very effective. Mm. It's, uh, it's forced them to come to the table to negotiate. It's forced them to make um, conditional uh, um, uh, accommodations for China. The Philippines is probably the most uh, glaring example of that, where that pressure was put on on the exports of banana, which is a really important export commodity for the Philippines. And at the same time that uh, the Philippine President Duterte came into office, he really did shift his foreign policy focus away from partnership with the United States towards accommodation with China. Mm. So yes, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, up to this point, China has every reason to believe that this sort of economic coercion will be successful.
0: And I imagine on the Canadian side, of course, Canada has to be fairly careful in how it chooses to respond. What can we learn from examples around the world or countries around the world that have had to deal with China in this way?
1: Well, Norway's a good example because, of course, it's a country where rule of law is very established and, and democratic norms are, are very deeply entrenched. And one thing that you, you do unfortunately see is that if you do take a principled stand to this and decide that you're not going to respond to the coercion, Um, chances are it could go on for quite a long time and unfortunately could also spread to other areas. Um, One thing that we have seen, I think I just mentioned, is the fact that probably a second um, area that China can put on pretty serious economic pressure is through tourism. Um, In in this case, I think uh, the Norwegian example is very important. South Korean example is very important. Again, the Philippines, uh, all of those instances where you saw the initial target was the, the export market or the import market. It did move over towards tourism and in some instances actually even affected things like student exchange or, or f- overseas students. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Obviously, we'll see how Canada responds to this. And I mentioned it probably has to be careful in how it chooses to respond. But aside from just giving China what it wants, right. if you put your shoes in the Canadian government. I mean, what should it be doing now? What will it be analyzing and assessing?
1: I mean, this is core to the risk of dealing with China. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and unfortunately, there's asymmetry between China and Canada in many ways. Canada doesn't have a lot of leverage in this particular um, uh, set of uh, of problems. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it doesn't have a lot that it can do. It can continue to push uh, around areas of, of regulation. It could bring a complaint to the WTO because at this point, Um, putting these restrictions on canola, even if they are around what China says are are concerns around um, uh, pest issues or or public health issues. You can bring those complaints to the WTO. You can try to find some sort of international arbitration to deal with it. But those are very, very long-term solutions, something that wouldn't necessarily uh, affect the, the current condition and the current pressure put on the canola market in Canada.
0: Canola is one example. We've seen steel and aluminum tariffs, softwood tariffs, yeah. other trade measures coming from the States. Is this potentially just a reality we have to deal with in a, in a globalized world and in a country that's a trading nation, essentially?
1: I think absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, being a trading nation makes you vulnerable to trade. <laughs> right? I mean, it's it has its good parts and it has its bad parts. The bad parts being that states can use trade and, and imports and export tools in order to achieve political ends. And you just have to, to focus on having a diverse enough trade portfolio that when this does happen, you can either shift exports to another country, You can um, address these issues through, as I said, international or multilateral or bilateral mechanisms that uh, focus on arbitration. Um, But it is something that is fundamental to the international trade system and something that Canada, as well as many other countries uh, throughout Asia and throughout the the rest of the world, have to deal with.
0: Does Canada have to be careful about setting a precedent that if it does what China wants, for example? It has to be wary that maybe other countries take note or that China makes a mental note that, okay, it was very effective the first time around, we can do it again.
1: Absolutely. And uh, unfortunately, that means um, Canada has to be prepared to absorb a certain degree of of economic pressure and mm-hmm. economic pain in order to show that it's not going to succumb to coercion. Uh, it, it's a challenging problem set, and it's something that there's not a simple solution to. And particularly when you do have, as Canada does, a commitment to uh, high quality engagement uh, and making sure that uh, you're following regulations and, and doing everything in line with international uh, and national best practices. But there are lots of opportunities for Canada to diversify its export market, the CPTPP, as we talked about last time with mm-hmm. Japan, um, with, with, uh, with Singapore, with other states in Southeast Asia. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity there. So if, uh, if you need to shift uh, canola exports somewhere else, now is a really, really good time to do it. <laughs>
0: Fair <laughs> enough. Jeff, as always, a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. That's Jeff Reeves, Vice President of Research at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. The Forum for Women Entrepreneurs recently awarded Skipper Auto and its co-founder Sonia Strobel the top prize in their annual pitch for the purse competition. Sonia joins me now. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Tell me a little bit about the backstory to Skipper Auto.
2: Yeah, so Skipper Auto, you know, came into being in our family really because there was a a need. Mm. So Skipper Otto is my father-in-law, and he's been fishing the coast for over 50 years. But we were seeing that traditional way of life disappear in our family. And we were really sad to see that in all families on the BC coast who were losing that way of life for a bunch of reasons. There's so many problems in the seafood industry. You know, uh, locally, you you half the time when you buy seafood, you don't even know if it's what it says it is on the label. Mm-hmm. So there's all these studies about seafood fraud, um, all kinds of other problems, environmental and social problems in the seafood industry. And at the same time time fishing families like ours were disappearing because 90% of their catch is exported and they're paid really poorly for it. And so we saw a need for a connection between local fishing families and people who love seafood. So we started Skipper Auto as a sustainable seafood subscription program, and it was Mm -hmm. a way for seafood lovers to connect directly to fishing families to get the best seafood that they can ever get. (laughs) And also to ensure that these fishing families who are doing right by the environment and by people can stay in this traditional fishing way of life. So
0: I think it's fairly really common. BC, someone has a connection to this industry. You hear about mm. a relative, a grandfather, mm-hmm. a long line of fishermen working yeah. in this space. But tell me, how monopolized is it from a corporate perspective?
2: Yeah, the industry is fairly monopolized, and it really is um, has really become a consolidated industry that is export oriented. Mm. And And you know I see that I see that as being problematic for a lot of reasons. that lengthy supply chain means that, uh, that there are profits in there that are going to people who are not connected to the harvest of the seafood in any way. And that makes it really difficult for traditional and small scale fishing methods to to continue. And so the industry gets pushed, you know, as, as an unintended consequence, really ends up being um, you know massive scale. You see these factory vessels that extract huge volumes indiscriminately. Uh, from the sea. And, and, and most people, when they learn that, they don't want that. They actually do want to know that people who are, who are passionate about the sea and love to be out on the water are able to continue to fish and to be you know, one person on a very small boat out in this beautiful, clean water. It's very different from, from the reality of the industry.
0: Yeah, fair enough. So this service you've created then allows these individual fishermen or fishing families to connect directly with consumers. That's
2: right, exactly, yeah. And so our members, it's a really unique model, and um, people often say, well, how are you not just another fish company? Mm-hmm. And really, we're complete upending of the conventional seafood supply chain. So instead of saying, well, we're going to go out in the ocean and extract as much seafood at as low a price as we can, and then we're going to find markets. We go the other way around and we say to consumers, seafood loving home cooks who want to cook seafood at home, how much seafood do you think you'd like to eat this year? Let's make an arrangement. And so our members pre-purchase a share. They decide how much. Maybe they want to buy a $500 share. Mm -hmm. So they purchase $500 of credit. We go out and catch $500 worth of fish for them. So then we have an online platform and our members can log in, see what we're catching real time, who's catching what, Mm -hmm. and then just pick the items they want so they can say, oh, I see that uh, Doug just came back with a load of halibut. I'd love to get, you know, five halibut fillets. Put them in your cart and then choose their pickup location. Um, And we have pickup locations all across Metro Vancouver and all across Canada.
0: How much variability could there be in what, you get for $500 today versus
2: say in six months from now? Yeah. I mean, it really depends on your tastes, um, mm. on, on what you want. So, um, you know, the costs of seafood vary greatly. So a halibut is one of the most expensive halibut spot prawns. These are some very expensive seafood. And that has to do with international markets. It also has to do with the cost of quotas and licenses, things mm. that are beyond our control. And so, but if you love halibut, yes, we will have it and you can get that. But if that's out of your price range, then we have also lots of lower priced items that are lower priced because of licenses, lower priced because of international demand on the pressure on the market. Mm-hmm. So our members can choose whatever they want. So if you say you buy a $500 share and you're looking, you know, you're a family and you're, you know, on a tight budget, then you can stretch $500 a long way if you take some of those kind of lower price. Sometimes there's sort of lesser known items too that people have never heard of but mm-hmm. are delicious because those items are exported or they're um, not even uh, really sold into markets because there doesn't, people don't know about them.
0: You may Mentioned before the transparency piece, which there have been so many media reports as you pointed out, Mm -hmm. about how what you're buying may not actually be the product you think you're buying. Yeah. And in BC too, I think about the fish farming industry we have and maybe some of the environmental or health concerns Mm -hmm. around that in particular are very relevant. Topic of conversation here in this province. Yeah. Have you seen that maybe shape desires or expectations around what seafood?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The people who who join Skipper Auto are are concerned, and they want to know truth, and they want to know facts, mm. and they're asking questions. And you know, if you go to the conventional places where you might buy seafood, you have a very difficult time getting answers. Mm. So that might be answers about where the seafood comes from, or how it was caught, or who caught it, or bycatch. But you may have other questions about, for example, you know, mercury. Is there mercury? And tuna. I heard a study about that, right? And really, you know, I was a high school teacher for 12 years. My husband was a high school teacher and Skipper Otto was also a high school teacher. So we're fishermen and educators and we really believe that people deserve to know the truth. And so we really want to teach people things. So we, once someone becomes a member, we do a lot of great blog posts answering those kinds of questions and our members can actually ask us those questions. So Mm -hmm.
0: You've been around for I think just over a decade now and you entered this competition as a
2: startup. What value did you see and why did you want to participate? Yeah. You know, as I said, we started this company in the, in the beginning, not even thinking of it as a business. Mm. You know, when we got started, it was just a way to solve a problem that we saw. And it has grown. You know, we've been very lucky because the company has grown, you know, about 20 to 40 percent per year since we started. And that's with almost no marketing budget. So really startup, we've always bootstrapped. We've never taken outside investment. And we've just, um, you know, managed to grow through word of mouth because because what we're doing is is the right thing. And it's cool. And people want to get on board with it. So, you know, recently I've begun to think about how the impact of what we do can be, could be greater. Mm. And that if we actually, um, you know, learned and aligned ourselves with right investors, with right smart money, that we might actually be able to grow this and as a result, grow the impact. So we have, you know, about 30 fishing families that we work with right now, but we're not even able to buy the whole catch of each of those fishing families. So if we were bigger, if we had more members, then we could really help those fishing families and so many more. They want to fish. For us, they want to work right. with us because we, we pay them well. We treat them with dignity and humanity and respect. We help them solve their own business challenges. And so there's no shortage of fishing families who need and want our support. So, you know, we began to think that if we, if we worked with folks like the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs, really who are all about mentorship and helping us to grow our vision and to succeed. I thought, well, if we start, if we, if I get to know these folks, maybe they can help us figure out how to expand that impact.
0: What are some of the big questions you had answered as a result of going through the mentorship piece?
2: Mm. I think the first and the best question really was that I think a lot of us, especially women in business, we second guess ourselves Mm. or we have what, you know, we sometimes call the imposter syndrome, like, ah, I don't know, I'm I'm making this up, especially when we're innovating in an industry like the seafood industry. Nobody's done this before. I can't get a handbook or take a course on how to do this. (laughs) We're making it up. And so sometimes I would second guess and think, well, maybe we should be changing our model. Maybe to have better impact, we should be selling seafood into restaurants. Or to wholesalers and to retail, but at my heart of hearts, I always believed that really what's magic about what we do is this direct to home cooks, direct to end consumer. And so, one of the immediate things that I learned in the coaching that I had here with uh, Ali Pegman who's been my incredible mentor, was that he's really experienced in helping businesses like mine grow and 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 you know seeing seeing people um, grow a business. Mm-hmm. And he took a look at what we were doing and gave me the confidence because he said, no, what you're doing is not only the right thing for the environment and for people, but it's actually really smart business. Mm. And that was a really great vote of confidence for me. And I've had a lot of that kind of confidence building at FWE. Um, I think that's you know one of the great things. And also just the introductions to great people. You know, If I have a question about marketing, um, I, I have at my fingertips just a wealth of some of the smartest people who are eager to help so generous with their time to sit down and spend an hour and kind of go through our marketing strategy and help me see if am I on the right track or is there something that I could be doing that I'm missing now that you sort of have a,
0: an idea of where you want to take the company, you mm. mentioned you want to expand, you want to have a bigger impact. What are some of the things you're going to have to start revisiting, staying true, of course, to your original mission, but mm. maybe having to change the business model or how you think about certain things? What are some of the changes you might have to go through?
2: Yeah, well, I think one of the biggest changes that we're heading into now is that um, we're, we're planning to move into a processing a little mm. bit. So that's something that's going to allow us to control our supply better. And so that's quite exciting. That's kind of a new piece of work for us to do. Um, We've also talked for, oh, back and forth for many years about home delivery and can we do home delivery or should we do home delivery? And I think it's something I'm really excited to learn more about. And now I have all these great resources at my fingertips to think about, um, you know, how we might, Kind of expand into that and how that might allow us to provide an even better service to our members.
0: I wonder too, with say fresh produce delivery services, the freshness is really important, which can make the logistics around it—how long you keep things for,
2: how you transport it—quite a challenge. I imagine that's the same in seafood. Yeah, and actually even more in some ways because you know for seafood to be its very best quality, you want to flash freeze it immediately after it's caught, and so you know we take great care to have it flash frozen, have it always kept below you know minus eighteen, so it's you know always really good quality and so if you do home delivery and you drop it off in a box on somebody's front porch Mm -hmm. you know you don't know for sure if it's going to retain that quality so there's a lot of um great wisdom that the produce delivery industry has figured out around freshness and quality and delivery. And so there's so much that I'm already just drinking up that I'm learning from folks <laughs> about, oh, well, how could you, you know, when you're, when you're reinventing, when you're disrupting, um, you have to learn from each other. And people are so generous with what they've already learned and sharing so much. So it's really exciting. Yeah. Have you faced much
0: opposition in an industry that's fairly traditional and maybe hasn't changed that much?
2: You know, actually, you know, I'd say that we've been really lucky, you know, the industry in terms of the BC fishing community, the BC fishing community has had enough, they want to see change. And so the fishing community, fishing families, uh, you know, are are eager to hear new solutions. And so they're eager to participate and to innovate with us. Um, And I think because we've grown, um, you know, very deliberately over time, very through word of mouth, we have a really solid base of very loyal customers who come back year after year. And I think that um, that has bolstered us, that has helped to give us confidence. And so we haven't really faced um, you know, major opposition or, or, or that sort of thing in the industry. Mm -hmm. As you were mentioning that the mentorship piece, obviously critical
0: for you and helpful going Mm -hmm. through this program with FWE, you also got the top prize, $25,000. What are the plans for that? Oh,
2: it's so exciting. You know, that, that whole evening was just an incredible evening. And to have the audience that were 670 guests in the room who listened to all three of us pitch and, um, you know, then the other uh, two finalists did an incredible job as well. I think they must have had a very tough job choosing one of the three of us. And I was so honored to be mm-hmm. chosen there at the end. So yeah, the prize of twenty five thousand dollars is 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 an incredible thing. You know, um, I, leading up to it, I didn't want to think about the possibility. I didn't want to like consider or, or budget or plan <laughs> for that money because it seemed like, wow, oh, what are the chances that I will I'll win it? So to have won it, it's so exciting. It's, it's, um, we have uh, great plans for, we have a wonderful marketing group that we've begun to work with, and they're helping us kind of figure out about how better to tell our story. And so now to have a little, this extra boost uh, in a budget is, is really exciting. There's so much that we can do with that. Great. Well,
0: congratulations once again, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That's Sonia Strobel. She's the co-founder of Skipper Auto. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can listen to past episodes and read, watch, listen to more business news over at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.